Well, good day to you. It's Joel with the King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. All right, dear. What will you have to drink? Honestly, we finally have somebody coming on this podcast who can make a decent cocktail. I'd like Tyler to make me a cocktail if possible. All the way from Toronto. I'm not offended. I'm not offended. He makes a great cocktail as long as, as long as he's making me one too. This is Where is the Love? I am Michael Ware. I'm also Ware. And, uh, dear, it's been uh, a crazy week. It's been yes. a crazy week, and I'm so glad to be to the weekend with you. Because yes. we have been like ships in the night. Yes. And, uh, um, it, it is uh, just been a lot of work, a lot of work this week. Good work, uh, work that we offer up to the Lord, but uh, we're also glad the, the Lord offers us Sabbath because... Uh, uh, Lord, are we grateful for it? Uh, we've uh, uh, we had a lot of work just uh, for the consulting practice. Yeah, uh, our two babies are insane. And <laughs> yes, that that always uh, that's a factor to say the least. And then I decided to take a, a, a writing assignment that I probably shouldn't have because of the schedule, but uh, I was excited about the pitch and. Uh, what the editor pitched me on, and so excited to share that with you all. Uh, but I, I wrote it over the course of just you know five six days, um, and if I say anything about the topic, it'll give it away. And frankly, they haven't accepted it yet, so I don't want egg on my face if they look at the draft and say, "Oh, we don't want you in this issue. Uh, this isn't great." Uh, so I won't give you the topic uh, at this point, but uh, but hopefully you'll see it published uh, in a print magazine in in the coming in the coming months. Uh, but yeah, it was just crazy. Just, I got little sleep. You, uh, you, I mean, you rarely get the sleep that you deserve and need. <laughs> and so, right. um, but, but yeah, glad to be here on the weekend with you. We have a date night tomorrow. We're going to see Batman. So I'm excited. very excited about it. We saw West Side Story last night. I thought it was a masterpiece. You just don't like West Side Story. But... I just don't like West Side Story, yeah. people. Although, um, Steven Spielberg loves that musical because you could tell how much he loved it when yes. he shot that movie. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. No, it was it was really good. I think another thing that made the week, um, we did a ton of work on the Substack. Uh, and yeah. so... Uh, thank you to uh, those who participated in the thread, those who, of you who didn't, uh, who weren't talking on the thread, but told me 
oh, this is so helpful to have this as I'm watching through the State of the Union or you read through it after the State of the Union, but we did a live thread of, as we usually try to do for sort of uh, big speeches, debates. Uh, that's something we offer to subscribers uh, for the Reclaiming Hope newsletter. And uh, we hadn't had an opportunity to do one in a while, so we decided to do it for the State of the Union and really enjoyed the conversation there. Really enjoyed uh, the thoughts so many of you shared uh, really got uh, both uh, affirming and approving of President Biden. Also, some really good comments about from from those who aren't Biden supporters about sometimes about what they appreciated from a president that they didn't vote for, and then other times really insightful critiques of what uh, the president did or did not say. It really uh, it helped me as I was processing. Uh, the State of the Union, and so want to thank folks for that. As always, do we did the political brief, the faith, uh, the faith brief, and so yeah, it was just a a, a busy week, but um, glad to be here and glad to be on this episode where we're eleven episodes in, Melissa, and for the first time we have a guest. That's uh, right, and it's you know this is. This is a, a, a marital podcast. These are sort of our conversations and we're, uh, you know, uh, offering them for uh, uh, for those who want to kind of listen in. Uh, but, you know, if there's been a conversation partner in our marriage, it's been Tyler. No, for real. <laughs> Tyler is just one of our dearest friends. And he also happens to be um, uh, uh, a... He's, he's a pastor. Uh, he is a longtime activist. Um, he was founder of the Two Futures Project, which we talked we talk about this a little bit in the podcast. Uh, Tyler's a very humble guy. He also, I think, has a, a healthy understanding of how much you could take credit for in politics, which for folks who have heard me talk about this, I think it's very important, especially when it's you. However, as Tyler's friend, I will give him uh, a significant amount of credit for helping get the New START uh, Treaty uh, done in 2010. As as I mentioned on the podcast, uh, President Obama's National Security Advisor would also uh, have uh, similar comments to make about Tyler. But nonetheless, the Reverend Dr. Tyler Wick Stevenson is currently Associate Priest at St. Paul's Bloor Street, with oversight of formation and evangelism ministries. Tyler is originally from San Diego and has lived in Toronto since 2011. Prior to entering Anglican ministry, Tyler was an ordained Baptist and worked in the faith-based charity sector, most notably as the founder of the Two Futures Project for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons. He is, the, he is also the author of several books, including Brand Jesus and one of my uh, all-time favorite books, I believe it was the CT Book of the Year. Yep. Uh, the world is not ours to save. There have been, I'll just say it, there have been some books that have come out since that seem to have been greatly inspired by Tyler's so book. True. Uh, which is good. I mean, that's like a in, in a sense, you that's why you write a book. You want the ideas to spread. Um, I will say Tyler's book is fantastic. So I hope you'll you'll pick it up. <laughs> uh, Tyler holds degrees from Swarthmore College. Uh, uh where he got a, a, a bachelor's of high honors, a Yale Div School, uh, MDiv, summa cum laude, and the University of St. Michael's College, 
where he just uh, yeah. received his PhD in theology, and we're so proud of him. Uh, and Tyler and his wife, Natalie, who's amazing. We love Natalie. We love much. Natalie. Um, she's a theologian, and gosh, we, we should probably have Natalie on at some point. Yeah, uh, for real. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love that conversation. <laughs> uh, and they have three young daughters who we love and who we uh, hold a very fond place in our hearts for. Uh, and they live in Toronto's East End. Uh, uh, Melissa, before we jump to the conversation with Tyler, which we already, we just recorded it. Yes. And it was as powerful and as helpful as I think we, as we anticipated going in. Probably uh, somehow Tyler always finds a way to exceed uh, those expectations. But what, why don't you share just a little bit about why, why we wanted to have Tyler as our first guest on the podcast and, and why we thought now was an appropriate time. I think that there's some things going on right now since uh, Russia began invading Ukraine, um, what, now a week and a half ago, um, where nukes are back on the table. And this is at a time where millennials, Gen Z, most millennials were born after the Cold War ended and some were, you know, very young, um, probably too young to remember much of anything. And so we're a generation who is not used to having nuclear weapons or, or nuclear annihilation on the table. Um, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, Syria, other wars that the United States has been involved in, this hasn't been a conversation. And so I think it's very easy, unless you literally are sitting in a, a Russian history class or, his, or a history class in the USSR, um, if you're not sitting in classes like that, you're we don't talk about nuclear weapons enough, even though they exist. Um, the United States and Russia each have thousands of them. And because we don't talk about them, we don't think about them. But now that they're back and this idea of nuclear annihilation is back on the table, it's, I think, very scary for people. Um, I think everybody's asking a lot of questions about, um, will this happen? Would Russia use nuclear weapons either in Ukraine or in Europe or you know against the US or elsewhere? What would happen if they use them? How would the United States respond? Um, why do we have nuclear weapons? Um, have, have we ever done anything to reduce the amount of nuclear weapons we have? These are all valid questions and questions that we thought were extremely worthy of asking, um, not just as people who care about the world and care about what happens in our politics, but as Christians. Um, Michael and I think there's a moral imperative to be asking these questions as Christians. And we thought that Tyler would be the best person to talk about um, those that sort of intersection of issues at hand here and talk about it in a way that's just deeply informed as a pastor, but also as someone who's been an activist and someone who's been in the policymaking rooms on these issues. Um, we just think the world of him, and we're really excited that he was willing to be a guest, even though, like you said, Michael, that our podcast really isn't guest space. We just knew that he was the perfect person to be talking about these issues. Yeah, look, um, this is a new podcast. Uh, we're so grateful for the listeners we have, but our audience is growing. It's not, um, we don't think that this podcast is necessarily single-handedly sort of going to share uh, change the, the conversation. Uh, but look, I, I, I've been... I want to play my part, and I know you want to play your part in, um, look, the, you, you, you see it. You see how the appetite of, of, of people is, is feeding into the machine and the way the, the machine is feeding the appetite. 
for these stories that glorify and mm -hmm. glamorize yeah. war. But I think what we're trying to say with the last episode, with this episode, what's one of the serious messages of this podcast, and, and, and really, you know, if I could just speak in, of, of, of my, my work, is we need to pay very close attention to what politics is doing to our souls. I've said before, you may not be interested in acting in politics, but politics is always interested in acting on you. Uh, and I don't mean that just uh, by policy, though that's true, but also by the, the culture of our politics. And we're in a very critical season now where the affections and the appetites of the public is actually going to play a role in how policymakers move forward uh, with this. There's been a lot of conversation about uh, sort of, and again, this is just an opinion, but, but mm -hmm. part of the conversation has been, you know, President Biden has been, you know, responsible. He's not been ratcheting up the, uh, well, that happens within, like, yes, you could be a, a statesman of conviction and that could just be your approach. But let me, let me tell you, uh, even statesmen of conviction have to respond to the political environment around them. And we have seen in the past statesmen who have been war wary um, feel pushed into uh, uh, conduct that, that uh, had the environment been different, their judgment about the wisdom uh, of those actions might have been different as well. The sort of the, 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 uh, the, the, the playing field, sort of the set of circumstances they're operating in, uh, uh, what the people are asking for is, is a part of that. So look, we're, we're going to get to the interview, get to Tyler, but I just ho hope, um, I hope this is helpful to, to you in the audience. I, I hope that you feel like this podcast is a place where you can come to, to learn about uh, and participate in a conversation about the very serious events that are unfolding um, uh, in, in the Ukraine and really around the world right now in a way that isn't naive or Pollyanna-ish or sort of avoiding the very serious de uh, decisions that have to be made, but also isn't treating this like a game. That also isn't treating this. Um, here, here, here's the last thing I'll say, which is um, there is... People want you to believe that morality ends where war begins. Mm -hmm. and, and the bigger game that's being played is people want you to believe that morality ends when things get tough. Mm -hmm. And for uh, Christians, we need to be able to say, no, it's actually in the very thick of things when the pressure is on that the way of Jesus uh, holds up. And so we're going to talk about that with Tyler. Hope you enjoy the interview. Tyler, it's so good to have you with us on Where's the Love. Thanks so much for joining. Oh, man, it's really fun to see you guys. It's uh, yeah. It's been way, way too long. It, <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, though it really has been. But uh, when after Melissa and I recorded last week's episode, we like stopped recording and 
uh, we've never had a guest on uh, this podcast before, but we were like, oh my gosh, we need to have talent. Yeah, you're the first. You're the first guest. You're the first guest. Yeah, eleven episodes in, and uh, and and you're our first guest. Uh, We just hashtag honored slash humbled. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's. I, I think one of the reasons is a we just love talking with you about anything, uh, uh, but but b you know no one's been uh, I think more impactful in my life in um, I think having a, a a sober approach to conflict, the cost of war, um, and. Melissa and I talked on the, on last week's uh, episode about some of the flippancy that we've been seeing, uh, uh, and um, and then of course, probably early this week. Although I guess Putin had made some comments, but really this week we saw the nuclear conversation really sort of sort of percolate uh, yes. and become a real uh, sort of topic of concern and, and discourse. And so, yeah, wanted, wanted to have you on to, to talk us through. And, and I guess where I'd like to start Tyler is obviously this is an impossible sort of question to, to answer in, uh, in, in a full way, but would love for you to just orient our listeners to, you know, the role that nuclear weapons play in global affairs, what function do they serve and, and what, what kind of damage, could they inflict, you know, it's been such a long time, obviously North Korea, uh, nuclear, uh, the conversation about nuclear weapons sort of uh, comes up with Iran, I guess, but, um, it's such different for, it's so different for this generation. I think, um, uh, we're, uh, sort of the, the, the likelihood, the sort of, um, the, the, the immediacy of the nuclear threat it, it has really not been, there are a lot of threats that face millennials and, and Gen yes. Z, but nuclear weapons really hasn't been at the top of folks' mind until I think this week in some critical ways. Yes. So yeah, orient us to, uh, to just sort of the role of nuclear weapons in, in global affairs. Well, yeah, that you're right. That is a, a huge question, but I'll, I'll do my best. So, I mean, I think the best way to kind of break it down is, is historically, so that um, uh, after World War II, with the advent of nuclear weapons in in, uh, in armed conflict, when the Hirosh- when uh, the United States dropped the only two nuclear weapons ever used in war on the Japanese city of cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, you start to see a buildup uh, of nuclear weapons um, and the expansion of nuclear powers. So it goes from the United States to the USSR, and then gradually uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, 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 the United Kingdom, France, and China joined the nuclear club, um, followed thereafter by uh, by India and Pakistan. Um, Israel's in the mix there. South Africa has a covert nuclear arsenal. All of this leading up to all of these uh, are nuclear states by by the end of the Cold War. Um, but overwhelmingly, the the stockpiles, um, which um, in the height, uh, I think the height of the global nuclear arsenal would have been in um, 1986, if my memory serves right, when you're talking about something on the order of 70 to 80,000 uh, nuclear weapons worldwide, um, the vast majority of which are possessed by the United States and the Soviet Union as the the, the, the leading powers in, in the Cold War. Yeah, And that's the, the, 
that those kinds those levels of arsenals um, and the the disproportionate possession by the U.S. and Russia and then or Soviet Union and then that arsenal gets passed to Russia and that's complicated and also related to what we're seeing today yeah. uh, because some of the Soviet Union's nuclear weapons were in Ukraine uh, but then had it were transferred back to transferred to Russia um, when when you when Ukraine became its own country um, in the breakup of the Soviet Union um, the what we're seeing in terms of the sort of current state of nuclear weapons worldwide, where the U.S. and Russia have roughly equivalent uh, strategic nuclear weapons in the order of 2,500 to 3,000 um, apiece that are um, uh, ready to go, basically, and not all of those are deployed. Um, that's that's an inheritance of the Cold War with, yeah. with the U.S. and Russia having the, the bulk of the armaments. Um, then you've got everybody else as an order of magnitude smaller than that, than that in terms of in terms of the numbers that they've got. So you've got they're they're different, but China, UK, France, these are kind of roughly parallel. Pakistan and India, roughly parallel. Israel, just a little bit below those, and then North Korea at the the bottom of the list with about twenty nuclear weapons. And all these are are guesstimates because nobody really knows. Nobody yeah. nobody gives these countries don't give these da- this data. And I think historically, what's important for people to understand is, is there's these different phases, like nuclear weapons aren't this magic, aren't, aren't a magic spell that you cast it and it does this thing. They're a device that plays out differently in different historical contexts. So it's one thing when you've got the mutual assured destruction of the armament levels of the Cold War, Cold War ends and these countries do not give up their nuclear weapons, although there was a hot moment where uh, we hoped that might be possible. And then their usage starts to change. So with Russia degrading into sort of a petrostate run by oligarchs, um, it's it's basically their their claim at uh, being great power yeah. status. Uh, yeah. there's, there's not much else that would put them in that club. Mm-hmm. Um, with others, it's, you know, it's sort of the, the post-war powers, um, uh, the people who won world war two, it's, it's kind of their claim at the, there's, there's no coincidence that for, for a long time, the, the five nuclear weapon states are also the permanent members of the UN security council, right? So it's, they serve this kind of, uh, totemic function of status, um, because they, represent a country's capacity to um, wreak unimaginable damage up, upon an adversary. Um, in the, with the U.S. and Russia, uh, probably world-ending damage. Um, with, with the lower nuclear powers, I mean, certainly civilization-ending damage, um, but, uh, but maybe not necessarily like kill everybody on the planet. Uh, but there's no such thing as a limited nuclear war. So, uh, to get to where we are now, um, I think what, we, what what's a fair way of characterizing, say, the last decade, and I'm I'm playing a little bit fast and loose here, but roughly the the second decade of the of the 2000s um, is you've got this kind of battle of nonproliferation. Um, so you've got the U.S. and Russia scaling back their arsenals because, frankly, the levels that they were at were so bloated that they're just a, a even even if you think nuclear weapons are a good thing, they had way too many. Why spend that many? You, you, why spend that much? You don't need it. Um, you've got other countries sort of 
stabilizing their their arsenals, maybe building up a little bit. You've got the modernization comes into the question of, you know, are we keeping these up to date? Um, a lot of metaphors of like, you know, tuning up the old Corvette in the garage. Uh, and then um, mm. and then you've got the, the breakout nuclear powers uh, and uh, Korea and uh, North Korea and, and Iran would be um, not that Iran has any nuclear weapons, but that's the fear. Right. So mm. um, you've got, uh, you know, is the nuclear club going to expand? Mm-hmm. Um, and the um, so that's that's kind of the, the state of play. As to what role they play in in, in geopolitics and, and global affairs, um, I think that depends on who you ask. I mean, I think, um, and this is where I think things get really dangerous with, for you know, things are dangerous enough with Ukraine. But when once 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 whatever is happening now, at least resolves to whatever uncomfortable reality follows this, the the awfulness that's unfolding right now, and we start asking, what's this mean? Right. Um, there are going to be some voices that say, well, if you if Ukraine had nuclear weapons, they, they wouldn't have gotten invaded. Mm. Um, and I think that's certainly North Korea's uh, understanding um, yeah. uh, in terms of looking at Iraq and, uh, and seeing uh, the U.S. The U.S. war that played out the American war that played out there and saying like, well, they, that's that's the lesson that they learned from that. That um, the way to sort of assure sovereignty is is the capacity to ha- is to have this nuclear capacity, um, and so that's certainly one narrative. Um, another narrative would be on the U.S. and Russian side. That, right? This is well; those are actually different from the Russian side. It's that assurance of great power status, the level of nuclear weapons that they have. France and Britain. I think it's about sort of maintaining a kind of a kind of military relevance to go along with economic power. Um, you know, Israel's its own unique case, India and Pakistan, you're talking about nuclear weapons in a highly regional uh, conflict uh, setting. So anyway, I could go on ad nauseum about that. But so what what role they play? Yeah, it depends on who you ask, because they're a tool. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, <laughs> one time uh, here in the freezing, you know, what's a hammer for, right? Well, it's for banging in nails into mm-hmm. a wall. But I'll tell you one time we were, we were here and uh, freezing winter in Toronto and the the drain froze over in the parking lot of our condo complex. And Natalie was out there with a hammer wailing away at the ice pack on it. So like, what's a hammer for? Depends on who you ask, depends on where you're asking, right? Same goes for nuclear weapons. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So the last few weeks have reminded Europe of the potential for war on the continent. And um, it's also reminded Europe of the specter of these nuclear weapons and the destruction and the tool and the sort of uh, abilities that it gives a country. Um, so as an activist, as someone who knows government officials, you're familiar with diplomats and military officials and, and as a pastor, talk to us about what that means to have that as a possibility, what it means to have nuclear weapons and the, and the ability for nuclear war. Yeah. I mean, again, lots of different ways to answer that too. Uh, as you say, it kind of depends on where you're sitting. I mean, um, I haven't been in the activist sphere as my kind of primary vocation for, gosh, 10 years now, which is kind of shocking to realize. Um, so, and, and since then, I mean, my, my world is kind of a parish. Um, so I'm, that's, that's, that's my level of focus. And I, I'm seeing people being really scared. Um, uh, There's some poll that went by that said, you know, a majority of Canadians think this is going to turn into World War III. I think nobody has any concept of what that would mean. I mean, what it what it means um, is that we are 
you can imagine a chain of events transpiring where this turns into a full-fledged nuclear conflict between the United States and Russia, and it's not science fiction. Um, yeah. it's a worse, it's a lot of worst case scenarios playing out. I don't think that's, I don't think that's likely, but it's possible. Uh, right. you could see how it, you could see how it goes wrong. You could write that story without difficulty. Um, and right now I'm, I'm really grateful for what I think has been the measured response of, uh, the West, especially, I think the, um, uh, you know, I'm, I have no love for any of the nuclear weapons establishment, but I, I appreciate the way that the American, um, the American response has been to, to, to Putin sort of doing this largely, I think, performative escalation of readiness uh, to say like, well, okay, nothing's really changed. We're, we are where yeah. we are. We're, we're right. not going to push yeah. back. We don't, we right. don't have to do a tit for tat here. Right. Uh, right. You know, from my armchair perspective, I'm just applauding that. Um, yeah. But I think what it does is it, it, it brings for people and it's, 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 uh, it's all, it's existentially disconcerting mm-hmm. to realize that you are watching a story that could play out with the death of the majority of human beings on the planet. Yeah. Um, and the, absolutely the end of the world as we know it, um, beyond, um, beyond any question. Um, and I think that's, um, that's unnerving for people, uh, because, we like to imagine that sort of the game of life has has a field that it's played on and, you know, things can go badly for you or well, but you kind of know what could go wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I think, right. Uh, the pandemic has kind of shaken us all in that respect, like none of us yeah. has ever lived through a reality like this. And then to have this unfolding, I, I think people are sort of like wondering, like, well, I've seen the world go wrong in ways I couldn't have imagined. And now this is happening. Mm. Um, mm-hmm could this happen too? And, uh, and the answer is yes. Uh, the answer is yes. Again, uh, you know, there wouldn't be any bookies left to pay me out. So I've not put, you know, if I were putting money on the situation, I, I would say, no, I don't, I don't think that it's gonna, it's going to spiral into, into a nuclear war, but you could certainly see, you, you could certainly see a way that nuclear weapons are used. And then I think most people don't distinguish between nuclear weapons and power, but certainly nuclear power has been, that's been one of the headlines every couple of days with this conflict, with the with uh, Putin's war. So, um, you know, the this the conflict around Chernobyl and the Russian seizure of Chernobyl and then the most recent um, um, firefight uh, at this That's Ukrainian right. nuclear yeah. power plant. Um, a friend of mine texted me to say, you know, what what do I make of this? And I was like. Well, it's it's not going to be a nuclear detonation that can't happen at a nuclear power plant. But what it could cause is a is a release of uh, of nuclear materials, and then it's yeah, that's really bad if you're in the immediate vicinity or downwind from that. That's potentially affecting, uh, you know, all of Europe. Yeah, yeah. Tyler, uh, your efforts and uh, through Two Futures Project, your your partners, uh, uh, while you were doing that effort, like NAE, like USCCB, I know so many others, uh, were so critical to getting New START done. Uh, would you tell our, our listeners what New START uh, uh, was uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and have you been reflecting at all on that work and what it took to get there uh, in, over the course of the last couple of months? 
Yeah. So, um, so New Start was the the strategic arms reduction treaty. Um, new Start would have been the new one. <laughs> so to follow <laughs> on uh, the old ones that had been um, that had been put in place by previous uh, American and Russian administrations. And these are the treaties that were responsible for bringing our nuclear weapons down from those ridiculous uh, Cold War levels to the less ridiculous but still ridiculous levels that they are today. Um, so New Start, when is New Start? 2010? Yeah. Am I getting my dates right? And turning yeah, into yeah. an old man. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're you're very kind to say that my work was uh, was important to, to that. I'm I, I'm not quite sure of I'm not quite sure I'd, I'd, I'd agree with your sense of causality there, but we, we did, we did what little part take, we could. Take it up with the president's national security advisor, yeah, Tyler, I, and take I it up with. I'll, next time we get it, up thing, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, but so New START, basically, without getting into the weeds, it, it, it brought the nuclear weapons down a little bit more and established a transparency between the two nations so that, you know, each could be assured that the other was doing what they were saying they were doing. That's, that's, that's the nuts and bolts of New Start. I have, um, New Start, I always felt, um, I, the way it got enacted was, um, was, a, was quite a compromise because what had to be agreed on the American side was the quote unquote modernization of the American nu- nuclear arsenal. And that committed billions and billions and billions of dollars for um, upgrades to nuclear weapons, which upgrades to American nuclear weapons, which mm. kind of guarantees the the functioning of the nuclear weapons complex yeah. for decades to come. No, I don't. Was it worth it? I don't know. Um, you know, the the thing that I've been reflecting on as I've watched this unfold is um, the you know I'm I'm committed to the abolition of nuclear weapons um, as a on a moral basis and on a theological basis. Um, but the, that kind of work, your a commitment to abolition is, I've, I compare it to, it's, it's like water and it runs through whatever the, the Creek bed of current events looks like right, and right now. Yeah. Um, you know, the U S and Russia aren't going to sit down and negotiate, uh, further reductions to their, to their arsenals. Um, if anything, the cries are going to be pushing the alternate direction, even though yeah. it's, stupid. Right. Um, but I think what it points out is, is kind of, I, I think there's a limit to, um, these kind to the usefulness or the utility of these kind of cold war processes, hmm. um, in terms of getting us where, getting us where we need to go over the long haul. Um, they're always going to be, um, they're always going to be, um, subject to the vagaries of current events and um which is why i'm i've grown quite supportive of, of the nuclear ban treaty the treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons which has gone into effect in the, yeah. in the united nations so nuclear weapons are technically illegal um and mm. uh, um now of course countries then do what they want so but it, it changes the norm it yeah. changes yeah. the norm and it gives you something to point to um so yeah i mean i i think new start was worth the fight. Um, there's not going to be a newer start. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think at least for not for a long time. Right. I have, yeah. I have no idea what the future holds in terms of, in terms of all of this. Um, uh, in my darker moments, I think that the only thing that, uh, a fundamental conviction I have as, as an activist, and I would still call myself that even though it's not how I make my 
bread and butter anymore, <laughs> such as it is. I've become a priest, right? Uh, but um, uh, as an activist, I'm I'm convinced that people don't change unless they're experiencing discomfort in some way. It can be emotional. It can be economic. It can, no one changes unless they don't like where they are. And, um, and I'm not sure anything will be able to motivate change short of something like a nuclear disaster. And the only question would be whether or not we survive it. Um, and then, and then that it motivates a certain kind of behavior because it could obviously spiral in the other direction. It could, um, you just don't know once you, once you let that, once you let that out of the bag, nobody is a fortune teller. Nobody can predict that. So, so I don't know. I don't know what's coming. I think anybody who says they know where we're headed is a liar. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think just uh, the last question, Tyler is just, um, you know, as as Christians, um, you know, what what do we have to bring to bear? What what is the 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 best lens through which we we should see nuclear weapons, nuclear warfare, even just more broadly, uh, sort of the um. Uh, war. Um, uh, what 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 do we have to bring to bear to these these conversations, and and how would you urge folks to be thinking about and praying about what we're seeing unfold uh, uh, in, in in the Ukraine and and on the on the broader global scene? Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. I mean, I don't have anything like an authoritative answer, but I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. I mean, I think on the one hand, I think. You know, there's certainly, and I say this with some caveats because there's, I, I think people are kind of experiencing the horror of war for the first time, which is really ironic given that we've been in a war, wars for two decades. And it, like, yet this is the first time that for a lot of people it's like coming home. Um, so that's a whole other kettle of fish and it involves race and imperialism and um, uh, all sorts of things. So, like, you know, um, but leaving leaving that aside, I think um, I think that this is bringing home for people the horror of war. I don't. There was a, a picture I saw of a of a Ukrainian teacher who'd been who'd volunteered to go fight, and here's this woman who looks like a kindergarten teacher, yeah. like she could be in a movie as a kindergarten teacher yeah. with a rifle between her knees, just sort of weeping um, as she's going off. And I thought how afraid she must be. Um, because that's not what her life was um, a couple days beforehand, and how um, not only that she was going to be asked to risk her life, but she was going to be asked to kill. Yeah. Um, that like this is turning people into killers. Um, that's not that's something we should view with abhorrence. Yeah. Um, the the moral infliction of, of turning people into killers, um, and I think we it shows us how lightly we we um hold killing yes um in contrast to what i think is a biblically informed ethic so there's that i mean i think it it, it brings home the horror of war and the way in which it um you know all these kind of in, in the psalms you constantly read about kind of deliverance from fear of your enemies and i think for most of us in our modern context kind of it takes some interpretation to kind of read that and then you're like oh no this is what it looks like uh to not to, to, to be afraid, uh, to be afraid that you're going to be killed. Um, 
and so I think it highlights the importance of praying for peace um, and the value of peace that that most of us just kind of take for granted. Um, you know, it's uh, <laughs> the in uh, in in Paul's letters, you know, the, the the rationale for praying for government is that we can live quiet lives. Like you want the government to do its job so that you can get about the, the business of being alive, which is to to live a life righteous before God and and sort of quietness and holiness and war takes that away. It's uh, yes. yeah. so there's that um, mm. in terms of nuclear weapons. Like I said, I mean, I think, you know, there's right now you got all the pundits sort of jockeying for space at the starting line to be able to define what this means for nuclear weapons. Once, mm. once things resolve enough, I don't even want to say calm down, resolve enough, hopefully not catastrophic, not more catastrophically than they are right now um, to be able to, start saying, you know, what does this mean? And I think uh, what I would want people to take away from this is, is kind of, you know, as war is to normal life, uh, nuclear weapons are to war that um, people are going to have conflicts. I mean, who, who does not have conflicts in their families and their relationships, um, you know, walking down the street. Um, but these conflicts don't carry existential weight. And, uh, you know, they don't threaten to turn into the end of everything. Mostly, you hope they don't. Um, there are guardrails. And um, nuclear weapons represent the capacity for whatever your beef is in any given moment. And I don't mean to, you know, treat what's sure. happening sure, yeah. lightly, but whatever the conflict is in any given moment to be the end of everything for everyone. Yeah. Yes. Um, which on like a level that like, you know, my five-year-old could understand just isn't fair. Um, um, moreover, I think, you know, you asked how we, how we approach this as Christians. And I think, you know, I, I did some reflecting on like, you know, towards a, a, a biblical theology or, or like, what, what's the Bible say about nuclear weapons? And I mean, on the surface, obviously the answer is not much. Nuclear weapons aren't in the Bible. Um, but the Bible's full of questions of what do we trust? What do you put your trust in? And I think we have to look quite seriously at the fact that um, by tolerating nuclear weapons as the sort of ultimate guardrail for our security, absolutely, um, there's. I, I think there's a fundamental idolatry there because nuclear weapons can't be used justly. Um, right. I, I'm not a pacifist. Uh, I think. I think there could be a just use for a rifle there. Maybe there's a just use for a tank. I don't know. I don't want to get myself. I wouldn't want to commit myself too much, uh, too much here. Um, there's not a just use for napalm. Um, there's not a just use for nuclear weapons. And, um, and so what that means is that we've, you sort of tolerate this wicked edge, you know, it's like, um, and it's the ethical dilemma posed at the end of A Few Good Men, where the Jack Nicholson character says, you know, you all depend on this amoral or immoral periphery to have your quaint little moral lives. You know, it's got a certain rhetorical appeal, but it's fundamentally unbiblical yeah. um, because the king is not saved by the size of his army or the might of his arm or, um, you know, you're not saved by a war horse or the, the number of chariots you have. You're saved by... By the Lord God, and so it's. I, I think there's a the question of of what are you really trusting in. Um, that is what we have to wrestle with, and then pray accordingly, and um, and then settle in for the long haul. Because, like I said, the 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 work 
the work can be morally informed and yet what is politics is the art of the possible, right? So it's going to depend quite a bit on what, what current events um, allow, but you, you keep moving, you, you hold on to what you believe um, regardless of how plausible it might, uh, it might seem in the given moment. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tyler, for uh, that incredible conversation. So glad to have you on. Uh, Melissa, um, first of all, just love Tyler and the spirit he brings and the ministry that he has. Very uh, important. Tyler was just very careful. Uh, he was uh, representing himself, not the views of uh, his the church the denomination. Tyler was on uh, the podcast sort of representing uh, his own his own point of views. And so just wanted to make that disclaimer. But uh, but Melissa, we always learn so much from Tyler uh, when That's we right. when we talk to him, uh, and and so glad to be able to share him with all of you. Uh, would urge you to pick up uh, his his books, especially "The World Is Not Ours to Save," is I think a really meaningful book right now. Uh, Melissa, any final thoughts before we before we land the plane? No. I think that that was a wonderful conversation and I'm, I'm really hopeful that it will help you all as you're thinking about um, this current conflict. Yeah. All right, folks. Well, uh, it's always wonderful to be with you again. Would encourage you to leave a review on iTunes. It will help us get the word out about this podcast. Share it with your friends. Uh, subscribe at reclaiminghope.substack.com and, uh, and we'll, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. You told me that you didn't